Hello everyone and welcome to This Is Your Teaching Life, a podcast about ordinary teachers and their not-so-ordinary jobs. Join co-hosts Josh Simpson and Steve Crow as they explore the journey and experiences of everyday teachers, coaches and educators. Discover tips, tricks and advice as you listen to stories from everyday people who dedicate their lives to one of the world's most intricate, challenging and rewarding jobs, teaching. This is Your Teaching Life. G'day everyone and welcome to another episode of This Is Your Teaching Life. And we can't wait to bring you the episode that we recorded with Mr. Mark Collard, who I have to say I was pretty starstruck when we got to sit down and chat with him. A big shout out to Josh who teed this one up. Uh, One of the reasons why I was so starstruck, I guess, is Mark has a fantastic reputation uh, for what he does. And I'll read out his bio just to give a bit of a sense of who Mark Collard is. So over the course of his 30-year career, Mark has delivered more than 2,000 program days and presentations which have helped 100,000 plus people have fun and connect meaningfully with others in 11 countries around the world, translated in four languages. Mark's written five books and leverages a massive repertoire of 800 plus fun group game of activities to help people connect. He's produced 350 plus video tutorials and attracted more than 11 million views. Wow. And I won't read any more. You can jump on to his website to have a bit more of a read. Mark is the creator of Playmio and is regarded as one of the best experimental trainers and facilitators in the world. Uh, Some of his stuff on connection and just getting people connected and getting to know you really resonated with me as a teacher and thinking about how my own classroom uh, connects with one another, even my team as a team leader and even um, how we all connect at a school. Uh, it's a fascinating insight and an absolute honour to talk to someone as well regarded and probably as busy as Mark Collard. So huge shout out to him for taking the time to chat to us. Um, at the end, he leaves a little bit of a coupon code that you can use if you're interested in getting stuck into any of his resources on his website. But uh, we've left heaps of information in the show notes as well where you can find out more. So without further ado, we'd like to bring you Mr. Mark Collard. And as always, we'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land in which we gathered today and pay our respects to their elders, both past and present. Sorry for the interruption. Could everyone please tune in for This Is Your Teaching Life with Steve Crow and Josh Simpson. Mark Collard, thanks very much for joining us on the This Is Your Teaching Life podcast. How are you going this Monday afternoon? I am excellent and always good to have a chat. Yeah, we're very appreciative of your time and um, yeah, can't wait to dig into um, finding out a little bit more about your journey and what you do in the teaching space. But um, firstly, mate, just for the listeners out there that might not have heard of you, tell us a bit about yourself. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm a father. Uh, I am an adventure educator. Uh, I have been in that field now for 30 years. Uh, I'm also an avid traveller, although not so much in the last 18 months owing to the pandemic. Um, and uh, have a background in accounting. Uh, I have an MBA, so I've you know steeped in business qualifications, which is bizarre given that I play games for a living. <laughs> so people find that rather interesting. But uh, yeah, so I live in the outer suburbs of Melbourne, uh, born and bred in Australia. Although until recently, have spent a lot of my time outside of this country, uh, principally working with lots of educators. Yeah, beautiful. And how have you found that? Been trapped in Australia for the last uh, year and a half. You gone all right through that period? Yeah, look, it's. Uh, I'm grateful every day I wake up in Australia. Um, you know, for lots of reasons, uh, but particularly during the pandemic, we did have a government that, for the most part, was able to support us. Um, so I was grateful for that because many of my contemporaries outside of this country were not provided with the same sort of support. Um, however, the, the the flip side of that is I live so far away from most of my market being in North America in particular, that uh, I'm really missing the travel. Uh, I miss my Qantas business lounge. I'm a little bit precious when it comes to that. And I've not been uh, picking up any frequent flyer points in the last 18 months uh, at the moment either. So look, we've, we've managed, I've pivoted, you know, isn't that the, the word of COVID uh, a little, but to be honest, because I'm working with experiences and I'm helping people connect uh, there is enormous benefit in actually turning up, which is the presumptive setting, um, but having very quickly, having to identify how do I do that in a virtual pixelated format. 
Yeah, Mark, just on that with the Qantas Lounge, I did have a stint a long time ago now as a presenter myself for a short time and got a taste of what it's like in the Qantas Club Lounge. Uh, the buffet and the, the coffees and everything you could get in there, that was a highlight. Do you have like a special go-to when you're in there that you're really missing at the moment? Uh, just just the... Okay, I'm a bit precious about this, boys, because I travel so much. Uh, having just that space to myself where no one else bothered to care to talk with me and the staff were there to be able to feed and water me. <laughs> that for me was just one of the perks of traveling as much as I did. And most of my trips were long haul. You know, the average flight was 16 hours to Dallas and back for a lot of my North American uh, colleagues. So yeah, just that time where you felt like this was just nice, a nice little perk. <laughs> that, that was the part that I miss because right now I can only travel domestically and you know, I don't really spend a lot of time in there at the moment. Yeah, uh, very good. Yeah, no, very jealous of you boys. I'm, I'm looking forward to getting, <laughs> getting myself in there one day. Uh, now, Mark, we're really excited to, you know, really dive into all the Playmio stuff that you do. Uh, but before we get there, can you tell us about the young you, where you went to primary school, high school, and um, if you had any outstanding childhood achievements? Uh, I went to Coates School Primary School. Uh, your next question will be, where's that? <laughs> even for people who lived around it, didn't know where it was. Coates School was just another name for East Bentley. Um, even though we had a state school, I played for the tennis club. I went to a church named Coatesville, uh, all that sort of stuff. But it's in East Bentley in the southeastern suburbs. Uh, I went to Oakley Tech, which is no longer. It is the ubiquitous McDonald's and a car wash now. Uh, it no longer exists anymore. Uh, and then I went to Monash University uh, for my undergraduate before heading to New York for my, uh, my master's in business administration. And in terms of uh, childhood memories, I don't think I actually had a childhood because I cannot remember much. And I, <laughs> my wife, who has an enormous memory of all sorts of things when she was young, uh, teases me a great deal because I figured my memories didn't really kick in until I was about 22. <laughs> it's funny that, isn't it? Like a few of the staff we've had on here asking them about their primary school, they've got very vivid memories, but I'm a bit similar. I don't remember much yeah. from my primary school days. So. Very, very little. I know I was around, but uh, no. I don't remember much at all. And maybe that's a good thing. Maybe unless I'm blocking a lot of stuff out. <laughs> Mark, one of the questions we love to ask teachers, and it, it's come a bit of a joke, I suppose. And uh, we're really interested to ask you this, actually, because we've heard you speak about um, ATAR scores and ENTER scores sort of, you know, and how they determine success or not. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. But um, the question is simply, what was your ENTER score? Do you, do you remember? And <laughs> well, I'm aging myself here. Um, there, it wasn't called that then, and I don't even know what it was called back then. Because <laughs> I went to tech school, um, I, I was on the track of trades and you know, those, those uh, trade-related occupations. And I went to a tech school because my dad was a plumber. And he said, well, it's good enough for me. It's good enough for my sons. So I went to a tech school. But by the time I finished year 11, and that's as far as you could go at tech, um, uh, it was clear I had academic uh, inclinations. So I had to do a thing called the TOP, Tertiary Orientation Program, which was the toughest academic year of my life because I'd never written an essay. I'd never sat an exam until effectively my year 12. And thankfully, I passed and that got me into university. Uh, I remember being uh, top of my class, but I have no recollection of what the numbers were. But I had, you know, the pick of, courses and then of course as you know I shared with you I had the ability to then do a master's degree as well so I guess I must have done very well but I do not remember the number and it wasn't called ATAR, ENTAR or anything of that it was back in the days of HSC, HSC. <laughs> We'd love to find out like from your perspective as a professional you know working in the education space and uh, you know we laugh about it joking there's so many people we've interviewed that have got you know 50 odd or you know, between 50 and 70, and we laugh how it's, it has nothing to do with what sort of a teacher you are. But um, I think yeah. I've heard you speak about a study that was done or something yeah. like that. Would you mind touching on that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. And this, you know, I've spent a great deal of time researching this, this work because it, in essence, the work that I do, while it looks to the outside, like me just playing games and activities, it is that, but the point of that work is to help people connect. Because you make a really useful point, that connection between someone's ATAR or ENTER score and the level of success or well-being that they achieve are completely unrelated. Even though we went all through school, and I suspect most students today still go through school thinking that the higher that score, the more successful with that they would be. And I can tell you that 
for 30 years, I've worked in a space where it's been all about helping people connect. You know, your, your listeners understand that the stronger the connections in your classroom, the, the more you can amplify the results of whatever you're trying to get done. And, and I have, through my career, found that fun, interactive group games and activities are a really powerful and, thankfully, attractive way to help people connect. And so I was really interested to know, because anecdotally, it seemed to make sense to me. I knew that a group of people that would spend a day with me, none of whom knew each other beforehand, just we created this wonderful thing called a temporary community. And it occurred to me, it's like, where's the evidence? When someone would say, yeah, Mark, this just looks like fun games. This is just frivolous. But I couldn't explain it to them in a way that made sense to say, no, there's actually, there's real value in taking fun seriously. And in fact, I wrote a whole book about it. Until about 10 years ago, more and more research was in this space. And there's one particular study that's an Australian, New Zealand study. Craig Olson, O-L-S-O-N, I think it is. Anyway, the, the, the Otago study. Um, thousands of young people had been interviewed for this study. And it's a longitudinal study. So it actually continues to this day where they were basically asking this question. You give me an 18-year-old. And I'll be able to tell you how successful they will be 14 years later. That was the basic study. And they looked at all of the factors that they could study as an 18-year-old to identify which one had the strongest correlation to their success. Now, I need to say that success wasn't about how much money they made or how many friends they had or you know, how good-looking they were. It was based around this nebulous understanding of well-being. And I say nebulous, there's a lot more studies around that these days, but this concept of, you know, their, their well-being, their welfare. I'm going to give you the top and, top and tail of the study. At the bottom end of the study, the thing that had the least correlation to one's success was this thing called the ATAR score or whatever it was referred to in that part of the world. That is to say, someone with a high ATAR score had very little correlation. In fact, if you know anything about statistics, it's a 0.12. So it's barely statistically even significant. Very little correlation between your ATAR score and the level of well-being or success 14 years later. And the, the inverse is true. Someone with a really poor ATAR score might have, it, there's no correlation to them to being unsuccessful either. Going through all the different factors, the number one factor that determined their success as a 32-year-old was their ability to form and sustain healthy relationships. Let me just say that again. Their ability to form and sustain healthy relationships was the number one factor that determined their success. Point to me on the curriculum, gentlemen, where we teach that in our schools. Now, this is not me blaming anybody. My point is, if that is the thing that sets up young people for success, why isn't it explicitly taught? That's a whole other podcast for you right there. But um, oh. that was one of the studies. It is, And the correlation is 0.62, really high. That is to say that the correlation between someone's ability to form healthy relationships and their success is related about 0.62. Now, the best you could do, a cause and effect is 1.0 for those who don't aren't familiar with the statistics. So 0.62 is really, really high. Yeah, it's pretty amazing, isn't it? I know like we've both got the PE background, so we can see the importance of games and making yeah. those connections and stuff. But as you were speaking, Mark, I was just thinking, you know, in my role as a learning specialist and a classroom teacher at the moment, we're not putting enough time into that stuff. Like you said, on the curriculum, it just gets pushed aside by the curriculum constraints, unfortunately. And I just had an email today, someone complaining how too much time is spent at the beginning of the year dedicated to building relationships. And like, oh, I wanted to go back and say, you're wrong. It's way more time than you're given. How is it? Because their complaint is that they don't have enough time to get through their curriculum. Uh, in fact, the inverse is true. You know, story after story after story of people who have integrated this principle of building up these relationships early on, they find that they actually get through a lot more curriculum by the end of the year because they've dealt with a lot of these, these community issues early on that they actually manage to cooperate and work together far more productively and as a result get through more than enough of their curriculum by the end of the year. So, yes, it does take time. 
unashamedly time and energy but it's not just about even getting through, you know, whatever your curriculum is. It's about setting these young people up for success long after they've left school. That's really, you know, that, that's what schools are for, isn't it? Not just to get an ATAR score. Yeah. Like this is probably the, one of the big things I wanted to talk to you about, Mark. So if you don't mind, we'll jump straight into it because we have that dedicated we have that dedicated time at in our context at the moment. It's traditionally two weeks, but this year it was about seven days, I think, just with the constraints of when the school term started. But you know, it's all that kind of setting up the procedures of the classroom, building the connection. We call it um, setting the climate. But it, towards the end of it, you just get that sense from people that they're saying it's too long. Um, the kids are ready to learn. Why, why do we have, we don't need this amount of time to do it. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's really refreshing to hear someone in, um, with your research background and skill and expertise to kind of back yep. up what we're trying to do in that time. And this is just my guess at why that might be the case is it's almost like chalk and cheese. It's like, okay, they compartmentalize the relationship building building piece here, let's say into your seven days. And then they like, okay, that's done. Tick that box and move on with the curriculum. Uh, I would argue this should be done all the time. <laughs> yes, have a dedicated period where maybe the balance is a lot higher in the early parts of your curriculum but that we should be focusing on these critical social, emotional learning or behavioral norms all the way through the curriculum, not just in those seven days or that one week or whatever it is up front. So that's why I think people feel like, oh, isn't this enough already? Yeah. <laughs> because it should be a focus all the time. Like, mm. And I often, I often speak to educators about this spectrum, and it's not a wrong or a right, but the spectrum between teaching and facilitating. Teaching is about imparting knowledge and, and there's nothing wrong with that, nor at the other end of the scale when facilitation is basically carefully asking good questions to draw the knowledge out of your group. And there are times and different types of curriculum that are suited to both ends of the spectrum. But I would argue from a human relationship perspective, the stronger you put on your, or the more times you put on your facilitator hat, the more likely you can facilitate the abilities of your group and to help them manage their behaviors because in the beginning like i often refer to, i have an eight-year-old son he's a mush brain you know he he's not able to make good responsible decisions yet most of the time but with time he manages to do that more and more often so as you as kids as human beings get older they can manage that more and more but it takes some facilitation up front we can't expect a six-year-old to know how to do that now by 16 they should <laughs> but if not then teachers or whoever should be able to to um, intervene in those periods and help them make good decisions so they've actually got the skill set to do it for themselves because what happens when they leave school you know that they really they're not going to have many more opportunities to be able to build those social skills in a really intensive way and i get it teachers already have a very full load i understand that but it's not about actually adding to, to it. It's just changing their role so that we're actually considering how we could facilitate the curriculum in a different way that highlights more of these social, emotional learning competencies. Yeah. And I, I love what you said there about, you know, connection. It's an ongoing thing. It's not doing it the first two weeks and then off you go for the rest of the year. I know I was fortunate enough to see you. I think I've seen you at Atchba twice, the Atchba Victoria conference and, a few years ago, you spoke about the connection before content. Uh, and I certainly, I changed my plan in the way I went about teaching throughout the year and, and jumped on Playmio and got some amazing games uh, from there. Do you want to touch on Playmio and tell us about the importance of those games for, I guess, anyone? So when I think of my own development, gentlemen, that uh, there was a, a guy called Carl Ronke who was my mentor. He was my hero. Everything about the first five years of my profession was about wanting to be him. And it took me about five years to feel comfortable enough in my own skin to actually take on my own style, my own personality. And in the beginning, I got that whoever turned up for my trainings, let's say there was 25 people or 25 teachers turned up, they all got what I had to offer. But the reality was a lot of people couldn't get to me, didn't know about me or couldn't afford me. So I started writing books. So I started writing books so that, that it could then spread the knowledge. But of course, you know, you couldn't get them, didn't know about them, couldn't afford them. And it occurred to me, leveraging the internet was the next best step. So 
I created just on nine months, uh, nine years ago now, this online database, because I know I've written five books now, as soon as it's published, every error is there forever. <laughs> when it's digital, of course, it's immediately updatable. And of course, you can add a whole lot of digital content, such as videos. So one of the most powerful parts of the database that I know many teachers often say is like, yeah, but what does it look like? Well, a video will not only show you what it looks like, but what it sounds like and what it feels like. Yes, it's still digital, but it gives you that sense. So Playmio is this massive online database. I think we're at 460 activities now. We'll have 500 by the end of the year. Everything from a, a two-minute energizer, icebreaker, name game, through to a substantive team building or SEL type uh, activity at the other end. And, and then there's a lot of health and wellness programming now embedded into that that information too. And there's a ton of free stuff. We could talk more about this later, but it, it, this was my best way to get the word out. You know, it was about this stuff is good enough. And, and my, my uh, mentor, Carl Ronke had said, a good idea doesn't care who it belongs to. A good idea doesn't care who it belongs to. And that has driven me for over 30 years to train, to write books and to now produce content online to be able to share with people. And we have got over 60, 70,000 people a month now who access our stuff online and most of them are teachers. Do you sit back sometimes and pinch yourself that it's reached so many people? And I guess the, the lead on question from that is how did you get it all going? Like what was the spark that kind of kicked off this big journey? Well, it was, it was part of that spark that I shared around just, just wanting to be able to share good stuff. You know, why would I want to keep this close to my chest? I can see the competitive advantage, but this wasn't about building a, comp a competitive business. It was about, Hey, I want every school teacher to get access to this information. And for the longest time I held out even having children because I didn't want to send a kid to a regular school. <laughs> it's like, no, no, I want every school to be aware of this. Now, I didn't want to become an 80 year old and have my first son, but <laughs> my point was that I wanted every school to get access to this information. And so that was my spark was to be able to share it. But it was really just, it was the fact that I was a family man. And as much as I love travel, I didn't want to always have to rely on turning up. And what's beautiful from, you know, I've moved from 120 days, billable days with travel to roughly 15, 20 days a year now, which is about the sweet spot because I spend most of my time writing now, getting access to people who would never have learned about me, could never afford me or never even turn up where I could have done a training. So this for me was as much solving my need because there are just hundreds and hundreds of activities that I know. But if I haven't used it for a while, it's like, ah, oh, how do I say it again? What's, what's the rule? What's the parameter that's missing? So this was as useful for me. And I'm, you know, this is not particularly useful for a podcast, but I'm holding up my phone on here as an app where I can access my brain. But it's there all the time, unlike my brain, which fades. And of course, it just turns out this is useful as a tool to many other educators as well. So it was there as much for me as it was for anybody else. It's a pretty amazing resource. Like I was flicking through a few of your videos just before we were chatting to you. I have to say a big thank you because I finally understand the can you come to my party game. This might sound <laughs> silly, but the amount of times I've been in a social setting or a camp and someone said, can you come to my party? And I haven't picked up And they refused to give it away as well. Yeah. That was the frustrating thing. Beware, because so. the next time they, they bring you to your party, they're going to change the key. And you're going to be locked out. But that actually brings up something that Mark, you say in your videos. I, something that I always pick up on is your language and the way you articulate, um, I guess, the, the activity that you're going to be doing with participants. But you always say, look, in a few moments, you will know the answer. What's the purpose of doing that with the group? That is so critical that you ask that. Um, and it's particularly relevant for those activities where I know there's a source of frustration because I want people to understand that there's an end here. Um, uh, unlike your experience, uh, was it Steve or Josh? I've, I've lost track. That's Steve. That's, <laughs> yeah. that's Steve, right. thank you, Steve. Sorry. You haven't moved. I just forgot. So, Steve... <laughs> So maybe your first experience was like mine, where it, this thing went for over three hours around the campfire and no one ever let on what the key was. And so, of course, you start telling yourself stories around how bad you are, you're not good at this, and then you get picked on because you don't know. None of this is good self-esteem building stuff, but it shouldn't be designed for that. It should be about a challenging little puzzle that shouldn't last too long that you might have a little bit of fun with. So 
the framing is key, as you share there, Josh, that, that if I'm going to introduce something that I know there could be a significant source of frustration, I'll let them know, hey, in about five minutes, everyone's going to know this answer. There'll always be someone who gets it quicker than others, but everyone's going to get it within this time. And I remind them that a couple of times, because unless you are there deliberately to stir up frustration, and there are times when that's useful, most of the time, these activities aren't necessarily needed for that purpose. So, uh, and because everything we create is in language, you know, I'm really clear about how powerful a weapon my, my words are. You know, I can make or break a group or framing an experience if I don't use the right words. Yeah, Mark, even just listening to you speak, you've got such an eloquent way and such a clear way of communicating. And obviously you've focused on that a bit. I'm interested to know, like, how did that part of your presenting style start? Like, obviously, we've got some presenting aspirations and had a bit of a dabble ourselves here and there. But, you know, when you hear people present and they're so clear and so knowledgeable, it's such a profound experience to go to. Where did you develop that skill? It's the standard 30-year 30 30 year overnight success. So, <laughs> uh, it hasn't happened overnight. Um, and, then, and, look, I've also had the extraordinary privilege and benefit of being a voice professional as a parallel career over a big part of my 30 or more years in this field. At a time when really I needed to have a couple of jobs up my sleeve because you know, we both know education doesn't pay particularly well, but it was enough. But what I loved was my ability to use my voice for narrating audiobooks, narrating um, voiceovers for TV commercials, radio commercials, uh, textbooks, and so forth. So I had a career as a voice professional. And in order to get that, I had to study and train enormously to be able to develop my voice. Um, so it doesn't happen automatically because most of us don't speak in a way that allows the, the, the resonance of our voice to actually be explored. And so I had to unlearn all of the bad habits I had learned so that I could use it. And so one of the first things I often share with people is that if at any point, when you're presenting, you're getting a sore throat, you're not using your voice correctly. That is a clear sign you are not breathing correctly. And so I remember going to a course that took over a month to retrain me to breathe correctly. And like I almost left the course in the first hour and they said, okay, we're going to spend X number of hours every day for the first week learning how to breathe. It's like, what? Are you on crack? I already know how to do that. I'm here to <laughs> learn a particular skill. And that they were absolutely right. I wasn't using my breath correctly. And so part of the richness of my voice and why it, you know, it's perhaps a lot easier to listen to than it was 30 years ago is because I learned to train my voice and breathe into it correctly. It's, it's, like, a, it's like a brass instrument. My dad has been in a brass band for over 60 years of his life. When he puts the corn to his lips, so long as he keeps giving that breath, that instrument will keep giving it a sweet note. It's the same with what's happening inside your throat. Um, it is exactly the same. So long as you give it the right breath, it'll continue to give it the right note. It's a really nice metaphor, that one. That's, Isn't it? That's great. <laughs> <I like> it. <laughs> yeah. It's probably something we don't think about as enough as teachers, I suppose. Like um, I've had a couple of graduate teachers the last month or so, and one of the bits of feedback we often give them is uh, your, the way you use your voice in the classroom will develop, but without really giving them any ways to kind of develop it. Yeah. It just probably doesn't happen by osmosis. But. And it is a specialist skill set too. It's not, again, I said, I talked about the privilege and the fortune of having developed that as a side career, but it absolutely helps me, um, you know, produce results. And it, I create a lot of videos now and naturally lots of webinars where I know that people are going to enjoy listening to this voice because, you know, there are many of the audiobooks. I did over a hundred audiobooks that I recorded no one's going to sit down and listen yeah. to me for 15 hours if it's not a voice they like. And so it's very different to laying down the track of a 30 second commercial compared to 15 hours of an audiobook. So thankfully I've developed a, a voice that works for my career as well. Yeah. Wow. You know, you've, you've done well. I'm very easy to listen to. That's for sure. <laughs> uh, you, you said that you've, you've been presenting for over 30 years, which is incredibly impressive. Uh, do you have a favorite place that you have presented at? And do you have any presenting tips that you'd be able to share with listeners? You don't have to give you good ones away, but. Oh, no, no, I'd, I'd happily give the good ones away. <laughs> um, it's, you would need this podcast to go over many, many more episodes for me to share all the things I've learned. And that would 
probably makes sense for every one of your guests. Favorite places. That is really hard. It's like asking how long's a piece of string. I have had extraordinary success and experience in the United States in particular. Um, uh, but I've also had the fortune of visiting 10 or 11 other countries to present training and keynote presentations. I think most recently in the last five to six years, visiting a lot of Southeast Asia has been a real highlight, particularly China. I've done a lot of work in China, uh, Singapore, Hong Kong, Taiwan, uh, Thailand most recently. They're all wonderful, uh, Japan. All, they've all been wonderful because very culturally different and they have a different language. Now, thankfully, for the ones that I'm speaking to, they can understand English or I have been interpreted or translated so that the audience could understand me. But you go to America uh, or Canada or New Zealand, there's not a big cultural shock there. And so part of my interest was, I know this stuff works. Does it work in this culture? Does it work in Japan? Does it work in China, Singapore, wherever? And overwhelmingly, yes, and why is that? Because they're human. They have a breath. When in doubt, be human. So what they find funny in one part of the world can often be just as funny in another. In fact, I often argue that I'm twice as funny in places like Japan and, and, and China because when I say it the first time, those that understand English laugh and then it gets translated and then they laugh again. They, get, they laugh a second time. So I often think I'm twice as funny in those sort of places. So there have been real highlights, Josh, for me because of those cultural experiences. Um, in terms of favourite places, to be honest, between planes, hotels and taxis, one place is, is no different to another unless I'm involved in the outdoors and then you get quite unique experiences. But otherwise, an auditorium, a conference stage, a training room, they're pretty much the same no matter where you are in the world. It's, just, it's the people that fill them that are quite unique. Yeah, no, I'd have to agree. With that. I don't think there's anything like a travel experience when you get to a foreign country and you can't speak English, like they don't speak English, you can't really understand the signs and you're trying to get directions and all of a sudden you're miming everything and trying to work it out. It's, it's incredible. I've had that a few times and yeah, it's, it's always surreal, I reckon. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And and look, you asked me a double whammy question there, or double, double, um, double barrel question about tips. There are many naturally. In fact, I created a whole series of uh, video tutorials that went for two or three minutes for facilitator tips. There were 60 of them. Every one of them had at least one thing that I'd been learning as a facilitator that helped me be more effective. But the first thing that comes to mind when I'm asked that question is when in doubt, be human, first of all. And secondly, take fun seriously. You know, fun is by far my most potent weapon. I know I talked about language being very potent, but fun is the grease that lubricates interaction. You know, it's really hard to stand away from people having an awesome time. You know, it's hard to look cool when everyone else is laughing. And so when you can embed fun into your agenda, into your experience, when I say that, I don't mean you have to be a comic or a stand-up comedian. I am not either of those two. But it's a bit like the Seinfeld humour. When you can hold up a mirror and ask a group to observe something, we all have a little laugh because it's kind of just those little nuances of being human that as a facilitator, I like to hold up a mirror for. So for me, taking fun seriously is by far the most potent way for me to influence how a group feels, which therefore just invites them to step outside their comfort zone. And you, 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 know, you know, we all know, every one of your listeners will know that every one of us, it's baked into our DNA, want to operate from within our comfort zone. And a comfort zone has got less to do about how we're feeling and more about how we achieve success. A lot of people have a misunderstanding of what this, this theory of learning is about. It's about how you find success. So everything in your comfort zone is how you find success. So I can drive a manual stick drive car. Okay, not everyone can, but I can. It fits within my comfort zone. I can speak and I master the language of English. But when my wife and I moved to Italy and we lived there for three months about 10 years ago, we took on an Italian language class. And we were suddenly in our outside of our comfort zone. We were in our stretch zone and at times in our panic zone. Because in our comfort zone was our ability to speak English. The thing about the stretch zone is that with tuition, with 
help, with leadership, with guidance, you can be successful. So if you don't know how to drive a stick drive car, then through tuition, you will learn to become more comfortable with it so that it actually embraces that that stretch zone now becomes part of your comfort zone. And after three months, we were able to have conversations in Italian that then embraced part of that comfort zone. But there was one time when we went to an Indian restaurant that was just outside of Florence and we turned up, we forgot our phrase books. We turned up and none of the staff could speak English and the whole menu was in Italian. There was nothing here to help us be successful. We were now in our comfort in our panic zone. And what do you do as humans when you meet your panic zone? You race back to your comfort zone, which in our case, we politely bowed and said, thank you very much and left and went back home and had a meal at our apartment. That was the panic zone. Nothing was there to help us be successful. Wow. Yeah. Like it's fascinating. And I've heard you, I think the quote that you've heard you say is if it's not fun, it's not worth doing. Is that right? Am I paraphrasing something that you said? No, that sounds like something I would say. (laughs) (laughs) It made me think about just, uh, I've taken on like a a maths role this year and um, it's been interesting coming from a PE background, delving into a math space, which I'm not 100% familiar with and the parallels between games. And just this often, I don't know where it comes from, but sometimes games are frowned upon in teaching because you know, there's this sense that, oh, they're just out there playing a game and not doing the work. Um, but it's fascinating to hear your perspective on this of how they just go so well together. And I guess what, what would you say to people that are still in that mindset of thinking that games don't have that And purpose? to be fair, there are many people who are playing the game and it's, it is frivolous. It's just about either energising the group or filling in time because it's idle or they don't know what else what to do. But when played carefully, like if you've sequenced a series of activities, some of which might be games, quote unquote, then it often doesn't take much to look for the significance of that activity and connect it to your curriculum. So if it's related to mathematics, for example, Steve, there would be many activities that relate somehow to mathematics. And so you might play the activity for benefits of building energy, uh, allowing groups to work together, blah, blah, blah. And then... When they ask the question, why did we do that? (laughs) Ah, did you notice when blah, 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 and you connect it to what you're about to do, you do that enough, no one's going to complain that they're playing because they're going to understand that there's a reason behind it, even if it's just to fill in time or to build energy, which are, are legitimate reasons. So again, I would ask those people who are concerned about the frivolous nature of games. Yes, that's true. Some of it is. But when designed carefully, in a sequence, there can be enormous benefit, not to mention just the connection to your curriculum. It may even reinforce your curriculum, but it provides opportunities for your group to interact. Because certainly when I was going through school, and I know schools have developed over many years, there was very little interaction, very little interaction. So any wonder most people had no clue about what to do when they left school. They didn't know how to work with each other. They didn't know how to build teams or work on projects with other people. It was just, it was made up as they went along. And what's wonderful about most curriculum now is that there is a greater emphasis on group-based learning, project-based learning, cooperative-based learning, experiential learning, that you've got opportunities within the school environment when facilitated well to build on some of those social-emotional learning skills. So yeah, if, if there is concern around that frivolous nature, you know, lean in dive in go find out where when fun is taken more seriously they can actually understand the value of why we bothered to do it yes so important especially at the moment like connecting between one another with the missed time we've had during remote learning and stuff it's yeah it's great advice absolutely and and i i in, in the first sorry 16 thoughts went through my mind right there gentlemen um In the first week or two of the pandemic, there was a tsunami of inquiries from my members, my community around the world, basically saying the same question or asking the same question. Oh my goodness, what do we do now? The presumptive setting was that everyone turned up. Now they can't. How do I take what I used to do and make it pixelated? And they looked to me as the expert and I was like, maybe you're looking at the person behind me because it ain't me. I've never done this myself either. So In the beginning, I was the explorer. I I, I used a different term. I'm not the expert. I'm going to just explore this with you. 
and quickly discovered that in fact, there was a greater need for connection in these virtual environments than there was when we turned up face to face. Now it's, it's very important when we turn up face to face as well, but I really got present to how critical, even more important it was in a virtual context because we weren't even sharing the same space. You know, I'm presuming both of you have got pants on. I mean, these are the sorts of things that you don't think of when people actually turn up. So I can't, I can't facilitate all of the different uh, social cues that you often get when you can see the whole body of a person or of a group. So the ability to turn up uh, and be present and as best as possible, try not to be distracted because like you and I right now in this conversation, we're just this pixelated little square on the top of our screen. Well, that's not how we normally work when we're in face-to-face. -face. I and mean, there's all these other distractions. So there's an enormous amount of pressure on the educator to engage people. Um, and the more you've helped that group connect with each other, the more likely they're going to be engaged. Yeah, it's, it's been an incredible experience, I guess, for teachers all over the world and getting used to teaching through a computer. How did, like, how did you have to change Playmio to still make an impact with teachers and educators over the world? And how did it change the business? The, the first thing that happened was adding a further attribute to our database that allowed people to search for stuff that was suitable for the virtual world. Because up until April last year, there was nothing. We'd never had to do this online before. That wasn't because you couldn't do it. Just no one ever was, no one ever needed to do it. So by about May, we integrated a new feature where you could, as one of the filters, look at all of the hundreds of activities and identify just those that we knew could work online. Now, I think there's 120, 150 of them now as part of the database that are entirely suitable for an online context. So that was one of the things that changed about it. Um, and I think what also changed in my mind was this, this presumption again, that this stuff only occurred when you turned up. And that's just not true. There was this presumption that connection before content only occurred if people could turn up. Well, again, that's just not true. I know how important and how valuable when I lean in and help my group connect online you know, I have teachers tell me about this every day, saying how valuable this content has been to help their students. And most of America for almost 12 months had been teaching online. And in some cases without videos, Whew, man, imagine only being able to hear the voices or perhaps see the text of your students. They weren't even able to see each other. Man, that is a tough gig. But still, there are ways in which we can help each other connect. Yeah, it's such a great resource. Just flicking through there now. Like, it's definitely been helpful to navigate the website. Um, oh, one thing that uh, I wanted to ask you about, Mark, and I've been uh, guilty of this, I suppose, in a lot of our meetings. We often start with an icebreaker <laughs> within my team. <laughs> and, yeah, just listening to you talk about icebreaker versus ice maker, it's really made me reflect on some of the things I'm doing even within my own team, like, would you like to explain that a little bit more? Yeah. Uh, this is like a little hobby horse for me, uh, Steve, because I hear a lot of people talk about, oh, yeah, I, I play a lot of icebreakers or I'm talking with a client who says, oh, you can dispense with the icebreakers because we all know each other. It's like part of my process. It's part of what I need to do. And it's not because I feel like I have to break the ice. It's just part of the process that I need to prepare my group for success. And I'll give you two examples. This is the relationship most humans have with this concept called the icebreaker. The one is that as a teacher or a facilitator or corporate trainer or camp leader or therapist, whoever you are, when you are responsible for the welfare of a group, is that you feel that, oh, I've got I've, whatever I put up at the front of the, the program is the icebreaker. This is where I break my ice. That is not the same as creating an environment in which you can break the ice. That is a completely different thing. That's the first relationship, is that we think it's something we put up front. The second one is a very vivid memory of me about to warm up an audience before a keynote address in Hong Kong some years ago. 800 people filled the auditorium. Um, the MC at the stage said, and now all the way from Australia is Mark Collard, who's going to do some icebreakers. <laughs> now, I'm still 
stage left. No one's seen me yet. The audible groan from the audience <laughs> was disconcerting <laughs> at the least. Now, they weren't complaining or groaning about me because I had done nothing. They hadn't even seen me yet. What they were groaning about was their experience of icebreakers in the past because they'd never been produced or created in a way that made sense. They didn't actually break the ice. They often made ice. And so I share with people in my trainings, my books and so forth, imbued in the language throughout Playmio is there's a big difference between an icebreaker and an experience which breaks the ice. And there are five key ingredients to any experience. Notice I didn't say game or activity. Any experience that will effectively break the ice. The first part is it's got to be fun. If it ain't fun, it's not worth doing. But if it's not fun, it's not going to invite people's participation. So it's got to be fun. That is one of the reasons why most icebreakers don't work, by the way. They're not often fun. I can remember being a participant in a lecture hall once when I think someone was filling in time and said, oh, just turn to your partner. You know, the conference has been going for 20 minutes. Turn to your partner and share your most embarrassing moment. What? That's not an icebreaker. I don't even know the person who's seated three seats away from me, of course. You don't sit right next to someone you don't know and share something that embarrassing. And I guarantee you that person would have called that their icebreaker. So the first thing, it has to be fun. Two, it's got to be highly interactive. If you're not engaging and inviting people to interact with each other, sharing can't occur. Therefore, ice will not be breaking. So it's got to be highly interactive. Uh, number three, in no particular order, it's got to be simple. It, it can't be too complicated if people get lost or that you lose a bit of momentum in the process of learning what's going to work here. It's got to be non-threatening. You know, most icebreakers, again, fail because they ask for too much too soon, such as turn to someone you don't even know and seated three seats away from <laughs> and share your most embarrassing moment. I mean, come on. And finally, it's got to be success-oriented. And what I mean by that is is that it needs to be based around, what are you trying to get done? Oh, I just simply want to invite people to interact or I want them to laugh or I want them to share. That's the, that is the barometer of success. That's what I mean by that fifth element. It's got to be success oriented. Let me share with, your, with you and with your listeners the litmus test. Most of us will have all gone through this experience. My guess is most of you, like me, have also led this experience where everyone's, around maybe seated around u-shaped tables and they've got the pitcher of water and the little individually wrapped mints and the pen and paper just positioned right and of course you never sit next to someone you don't know and then finally the instructor wishes in and says hi my name's mark look before we get started we'll just whip around the room and dot 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 you know what we're going to do here stand up tell us who you are where you're from and how bored you are i mean really <laughs> is this how far we've evolved as a species and incredibly that we wonder why it doesn't work well let's just check those five factors first of all is it fun no except for the class clown that person who treats this as a stage which of course just makes it really threatening for the next person if you've ever heard the words oh that was a tough act to follow well that's exactly what's going on it's threatening you know the number one fear most humans have is called public speaking and yet that we think this is the first thing we should be doing you know, a group that's just got to stand up and tell everyone about stuff. Um, is it simple? That's about the only thing I might give it. The, the, the task in terms of the way it's described sounds simple. The, comp, the, the, the process by which you apply it or achieve success is really quite complex. Um, highly interactive? No, because while you're going around the tables, everyone's thinking about what they're going to say. They're not listening to anyone else. And is it success oriented? No, it's just a poor excuse of not knowing what else to do. So we wonder why I'm not saying never use that task. Just don't refer to it as your icebreaker because more often than not, it's not. So icebreaker versus ice maker. There's a formula behind that. And I speak a lot about that in detail uh, in my book, Serious Fun. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, as you're speaking about that, it takes me back to high school. I remember the teacher would pull out the toilet roll and you'd have to pull out, like you'd pull a bit of toilet roll and however many sheets you had, you'd have to say that many facts about yourself. And it was, it was the class clown would, pull off as much toilet paper as they could and everyone else would get two or three. And then you'd sit there bored for half an hour because, mm. you know, it had to go around the whole class, 30 people saying, and it's just like, nah, this isn't fun. <laughs> no, you know, it rings very true, I think. Yeah, definitely. Uh, thanks for sharing that, Mark. It's some great advice there. And it 
Yep, absolutely. Down for next time. <laughs> um, Mark, what's the most proud moment you've had with all the work that you've done? You've obviously done a heap of work over the world. Has there been, you know, something that's taken off that you've been most proud of, or is it the whole um, Playmate platform that you're the most proud of? Oh, look, I think that that's probably a peak. Like for me, at one point, I'm going to decide that this is. I'm ready to move on and someone, you know, I'll hang up my rubber chicken and someone will take this over. So yeah, that's a crowning achievement because I feel like this has been the, the most effective way for me to be able to share what I have found to be successful. So yeah, that's, that's, that's great. But I think in terms of the outcomes that I've managed to achieve, and I think even just 25, even 30 years ago, having people go through a training workshop who were before your eyes transformed because of the power of experiential and adventure-based learning through the use of creating these temporary communities, people could be who they really were because of the safety nets that we had created. Those, there are many of those. I can think of many, many tearful programs where people have achieved amazing results. But it can be just little things like emails I get from teachers around the world or some years ago, particularly at the height of the Syrian conflict, there was, a, I think it was a woman, I can't even remember now, but there was a, a staff person, a volunteer who says, Mark, would it be possible for you to share some of your Playmio activities? We just want to be able to play them so that the Syrian children have an opportunity to laugh. And it's like, oh my God, <laughs> like, absolutely. Like, where can I sign up? Here's all of my stuff. Knock yourself out because... All they wanted to do was bring joy to these children who were in a worn, a war-torn country. Uh, and I'm not making any political statements. My point was that they were just wanting to bring joy to these kids. And this was one way that I was able to do that because I was never going to turn up. I was never going to be there to lead those activities. So that's an example. I, I'm really grateful for those times when probably it's rare. Most people probably get great results, but don't bother to let me know. But some people do. And I love it when they do. Oh, that's, that's incredible. Well yeah. done, mate. Um, Mark, we're very appreciative of your time. This has been some of the best PD I've had personally Absolutely. for a long time, and I'm sure it'll be for <laughs> all our listeners out there. I'll just have oh, yeah. one quick question before we go to the last part. What's your favourite activity to do? Like, what, what, oh, what's your go-to oh. out of all of them? Or is it is it like asking who's your favourite child? <laughs> I apologise. Yeah, like and I have my little quip where I say, well, this sits somewhere in my top 60. You know, it's like... <laughs> Um, look, the first one that comes to mind is an activity called one, two, three. It's a paired activity. There's, it's probably featured in every program I have run ever since I learned it in China five or six years ago. It's simple, but without, without exception, has always generated and triggered a lot, a lot of laughter. It also has some really wonderful, important uh, relevance to it in the way in which uh, risk is negotiated and trial and error are worked with. So if there's any parts of your curriculum that deal with risk or trial and error, then this, or making mistakes, this is a classic activity. It's no props. It'll take you only a couple of minutes, although most people want to play it for much longer. Um, and I've done it with up to 800 people all at the same time and little groups of five or six or seven. Um, one, two, three. You can look it up online. Jump on play me out and check that one out for sure. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Uh, now, Mike, we've just got a few uh, questions to finish up with. Uh, yeah. What inspires you to continue doing the work that you do? I think it is those stories that I get, Josh, that you know, people bother to let me know there's been an impact. Um, so today, for example, if I just think immediately, today I got two emails from participants in a webinar I was a part of last Friday afternoon. And they were so inspired by the presentation and the experiences that I was sharing, they couldn't wait. And they were Victorian teachers who couldn't wait to implement it. And then they've come back and asked for more. So honestly, that for me is what gets me out of bed. Although a little harder on a Monday morning, to be honest, after a big weekend. But, um, but yeah, that for me is what makes a difference. To know that while I can have a direct impact on the school my son goes to, I can't have that on every school throughout the world. I can't have it on any, every corporate training room or every camp or therapy center. But if there are people who are willing to try some stuff out and it has an impact, it's made a difference. Honestly, that, that for me is what gets me out of bed. And if I look at, if I look at all the content that I've put onto Playmium, I and mean, I've written five books, 
the biggest book I think had 95,000 words in it. I think we're at about a million and a half words now on Playmio. I mean, that's an enormous number of books. And so that's a lot to write, but to know that that's had an impact or can have an impact for people um, is, is a really pleasing part. And that's what helps me um, continue and continue at this moment because the reality is I won't be turning up outside of Australia anytime soon. Mm. And so I best just keep focused on creating content online at the moment. Love it. Yeah, it's fantastic. Now, you've spoken a bit about your own books, which we can check out on your website. Is that right? And um, yeah. just wondering, what what's your favorite book? Or do you have like a recommendation of a resource or an app or a game that people should check out? It, it's it's outside of this domain. And, and it's a great question. And I, I love to share this, but it's nothing related at all to experiential learning uh, or education. Indeed, it relates more to entrepreneurship. And I am an entrepreneur and I've created many, many businesses over the year and I work with other businesses. But there's an author named Seth Godin, G-O-D-I-N, Seth Godin, who is a brilliant thinker, uh, who is an extraordinary mind with to entrepreneurship and marketing. And they're the things that really jazz me because I built, I've built my own business. I work with other businesses and I'm always wanting to improve more and more. And his is one of the very few blogs that I read every single day. And so he's written books, of course, but I'm hearing from him. Seth goes out of his way to write to me every day. And I figured the least, the least I can do is at least read his stuff. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. We'll have to check that one out. Thank you for sharing. Uh, now, if it was your first day all over again, say, facilitating a group, what would you say to yourself? Uh, relax. Because <laughs> I remember, and I think I mentioned this earlier, you know, there was the first five years of my career, I was just trying to be my hero, trying to be someone else. So trusting the process. You know, there are times when I've really gone, oh, it's worked in the past, but why isn't it working now? To trust the process, to know that taking fun seriously it's going to vary for every group. So sometimes it's quicker, sometimes it's longer. But yeah, to, to, to relax, trust the process. And if you're having fun, more than likely that's going to rub off on the group. When you're stressed out of your brain, there's something about this thing that we don't quite understand, but does connect us to other people. They also feel that. And of course, then they're nervous. So for me, just relax. <laughs> can tell you, Mark, I'm pretty relaxed at the moment. So that's some great <laughs> advice. I just took long service leave for the last week just before. So <laughs> that's some great yeah, advice. Fantastic. That's <laughs> that's one of the benefits of working with a large organization. I've never had long service leave because I've always uh, worked for myself. So <laughs> <laughs> It's one of the perks of teaching. That's actually, it. Once you lovely. That is lovely. Um, thank you again, Mark, for your time. I guess lastly, where can people find you if they want to find out more or get in touch and access sure. your content? So they can just go to the, the website itself. So playmeo.com. So that's play, P-L-A-Y-M-E-O, all one word, playmeo.com. Um, and in particular, if they want to get in, uh, engaged with a lot of the free stuff that we've got, go to playmeo.com forward slash free, F-R-E-E. So playmeo.com forward slash free. Tons of free stuff there from uh, designated free activities, eBooks you can download, video tutorials you can watch. Um, uh, there's a Facebook group that we also have that's very active in the space of fun group games and activities. So if that's if this is something that's new to people, this would give them a quick introduction. Sure, there's tons of books you can get. You can subscribe or become a member of Playmere, which basically unlocks access to my brain. Um, and they can get access to the, all of the premium activities that are, uh, that are featured on the database. But yeah, start with the free stuff and see where you go from there. Awesome. Yeah, beautiful. It's uh, you're certainly very generous with all the stuff that's on there, mate. It's an amazing resource and certainly something I use within PE quite regularly. Just to mix up games, I think it's awesome. Just to, and especially the app on your phone too. So easy to open up and just find something different. And that's one of the free things that, sorry, I forgot to mention, but yeah, there's a free app. There's no in-app purchases. I'm never going to know about you. So, you know, you won't be spending a cent, but it, it because most of it is occurring in the palm of your hand, this is a great way to get access to it because that was solving a problem I had is that I couldn't carry 20 of my books or my colleagues' books in my back pocket. Well, this was a quick way to be able to get access to it digitally. Unreal. Is there no. anything else you'd like to leave the listeners, Mark, before we finish up? Yeah, maybe, maybe to benefit your readers and readers and listeners, um, if they're interested in actually subscribing or becoming a member, joining Playmio, I'm going to give you a coupon code. 
um, that if they are interested, they can just plug that into the checkout and it'll save them 30% on any of the annual plans. So not the monthly plan, not the lifetime plan, but any of the annual plans, whether it's for the individual, although most of our uh, members uh, belong to an enterprise or an organizational license, any of those are annual plans, 30% will apply to any of them. The code is F-U-N-N, FUN, F-U-N-N, which stands for Functional Understanding Not Necessary. That is, you don't have to understand what's going on to have a great time. So F-U-N-N, plug that in and you can save 30% on any of the annual plans. Oh, beautiful. Thank you, mate. We'll be sure to share that. Um, but yeah, thank you very much again. You're an absolute wealth of knowledge and certainly uh, you've been awesome for Steve and I to chat to. And I'm no, no doubt all the listeners will get very many valuable pieces of knowledge out of that, I think. My pleasure. And feel free to, to reach out. Uh, you can certainly find a contact page on Playmio if any of your listeners wanted to reach out and learn some more. But thank you. Thank you, Mark. <laughs> How do we stop the recording? Uh, oh, there it is. <laughs>